1: This is the Royal Blue Podcast from the Liverpool Echo, giving you the inside track on all the big talking points from Goodison Park.
0: Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Royal Blue Podcast. I'm your host, Sam Carroll, today joined by Adam Jones and David Prentice as we pick the bones over what was an awful night at Goodison Park as Everton lost 2-0 to form. But that's the way these things do happen sometimes. We got some nice, positive new stadium news about the proposed move to Bramley Moor Dock, not even 24 hours later. Uh, by the time you listen to this podcast, hopefully you'll have gorged yourself on all the Echo content put out there from Adam and Dave. Uh, And and Preno, I'll I'll come to you as the the elder statesman to just, for for people who might have just, for
2: people
0: people who've stumbled across the podcast tonight uh, and maybe might not have seen the ins and outs of the stadium news we got at 5pm this evening, can you give us a nice, neat Dave Prentice summary?
2: Yeah, well, basically, we needed something positive after, as you quite rightly say, that absolute shambles of Sunday night, which was so dispiriting and disillusioning. And we got it uh, unexpectedly, really, at uh, tea time on Monday night. I mean, in a nutshell, Liverpool City Council's planning officer has submitted a 200 page report to the City Council, where he's meticulously gone through Everton's planning application. And he's recommended that Liverpool City Council approve uh, the application at a meeting next Tuesday, February the 23rd. Now, it's a significant step forward. We've been waiting a long time for Liverpool City Council to deliver their verdict. They have done. What happens then is that central governments then have, uh, I think it's 21 days where they, or it's expected to be 21 days, it might take a little longer, where they look at the recommendations uh, from Liverpool City Council. And uh, they then deliver their final decision on the entire project. And from that point, we then see basically building begin. Uh, Everton announced that the funding structure is in place, which we believe is all uh, on plan and on track. And we get uh, a building to commence, which we're told about 150 weeks is supposed to be the um, the planning timescale, or the, sorry, the building timescale. So using that chronological procedure, if uh, everything goes according to plan, they'll start building, spring maybe early summer this year and we could be moving into a brand new spanking stadium on the Bramley Moor dock in time for the 2024-25 season so yeah it's exciting news it's a significant milestone in that uh, procedure and it was you know uh, announced today so yes you know it was definitely uh, a spirit lifting item of news after what we witnessed on sunday night adam uh, a
0: 200 page report which is a fun read uh overall <laughs> what, what are some of the kind of finer details any any things we might have missed that that you can kind of tell people
1: about well i think it's in it, it well it's, it's really interesting across the whole thing isn't it i think as that D- dave rightly says i don't think we've heard this 150 week uh schedule for building before i think that's a, a little bit new and it comes in at just under just under three years which i think is quite interesting and uh that process is going to be a 12 stage plan as well, which is I, I find very interesting uh, anyway. And uh, it's going to include new transport links for the area. You know, there's going to be like shuttle buses that are going from the city centre to Bramley Moor and also from Sefton to Bramley Moor as well, which is quite interesting. Everton are going to contribute to some improvements at Sandhills, uh, you know, in, in terms of you know the amount of supporters that are going to have to go through Sandhills now that there's a, know there's going to be a new stadium right right next to it you know there's going to have to be improvements to that station so everything they're going to be contributing to things like that you know the the uh the heritage aspects doesn't seem to be any sort of concern anymore which i think is you know a major thing isn't it because we've seen you know over the course of the last few years we've seen an overwhelming amount of support uh from you know everybody local but you know the any sort of objections have really come from, you know, the likes of UNESCO, Historic England, organisations like that. But, you know, the heritage report that's included in this wider city council report uh, kind of concludes that, you know, the the uh, benefits that are going to come from this project, you know, far outweigh any sort of, you know, heritage aspects that are uh, going to go awry. So I think stuff like that's really, really interesting and it's really promising as well because, as as Brenna rightly says, you know, it's going to go across across the desk of Robert Jenrich, uh, I think it is, uh, over the course of the next couple of months, you know, as, as a matter of procedure, it could get called up for, you know, a, a higher level of government as well. That's still a possibility, but even if that happens, I think the understanding is from the club that, you know, they're gonna be pretty confident that there's gonna be no bumps in the road significantly. So, you know, the, a target of getting on the site in the spring or the summer, you know, it, it is a really nice bit of positive news and. You know, it's kind of been a long time coming with the stadium hasn't it you know we initially had uh, the plan and application submitted in December 2019 wasn't it and then yeah. we had to update it in September 2020 with the uh, with the new design so you know it, it's been a bit of a meticulous road to get here but you know it, what now that we've you know got to this point it, it really does seem like you know' we're, the, the wheels are really spinning on this which is really quite exciting before uh,
0: atprint I up nicely on his uh, on his left foot, Adam, just just to stick with you, you know, as three big Evertonians here on this podcast, and, and I think we do kind of enjoy that uh, that people's club um, tag, but but some of the nice details as well in this 200-page report is potentially going to be one of the most sustainable stadiums in Europe, maybe even the, the world. Then I'd, I'd assume yeah. I, I'm going to have more uh, disability space for disabled Evertonians than any other
1: club. In the Premier League, that's that's great, isn't it? Yeah, it's amazing, and you know, it's it's what you, exactly what you'd expect from Everton, really, isn't it? And uh, you know, they they plan to make this the most accessible stadium in the Premier League, with you know, not just you know, a specific area for wheelchair bays that's maybe pitch side or yeah, anything like that. You know, there's going to be wheelchair bays right across the stadium at all levels uh, to give the same amount of access to disabled supporters as there would be to able-bodied supporters, which is you know a, re- a really nice gesture to see and as you say as well on the other side of things uh, this, the stadium's going to be as sustainable as possible so they're going to reduce uh, the amount of car parking spaces that are going to be at the stadium to try and encourage people to use these new public transport services that are going to be provided at the stadium you know there's going to be a uh, you know electric charging ports for you know electric cars for you know whatever innovations that happen in that area over the course of the next few years and it's in line with the council's Plans to be net carbon neutral by uh, twenty thirty as well, which is you know it, it's all just big plus points across across the board, isn't it? And I think actually what's in, what's really interesting uh, about another part of the plans, which we which we shouldn't forget about, is the you know the Goodison Park Legacy project is going to be yep. decided upon in this uh, council meeting as well. So you know it, it's going to be a sad day when we when we do leave Goodison Park, but it's it's also nice to have you know the the future court sort of set in place for there as well.
0: I'm proud to, to come to swing back to you then. You've also wrote a, a nice little piece today about, I'd say, given the middle finger, but probably it's a PG podcast. So <laughs> giving, the, giving <laughs> the thumbs down <laughs> to UNESCO and World Heritage and, and even the, the Victorian Society, which is which is a new one for me. People who have in the past uh, opposed this this World Heritage site. Um, plan from Everton, uh, but it seems like now Everton have kind of got most of them on board with them and the people who they haven't look like they're just going to have to grin and bear it because the uh, the positives quite clearly, uh, and, he, and even the report now is admitting it, outweigh the negatives by a, a long distance, don't they, to, to build this new stadium?
2: Yeah, definitely. I mean, it, this is an issue which concerned Everton initially because you really have to be impressed by the way they've approached this entire project. And I know that sounds like we're blowing smoke up the backside a little bit, but you know they do deserve it because they've approached this project so well and so impressively. And heritage was something that concerned them because there are three bodies out there that objected um, to the to, to the uh, the plans. Um, UNESCO, who threatened to remove um, Liverpool's World Heritage Site status, the Victorian mm. Society, which I have to say I'd never even heard of uh, prior to the raising their objections about um, the the stadium scheme and then historic England. And regardless of what people think, these bodies are influential. I mean, they do look after uh, the the heritage and the history of um, of world centres and centres in this country. And so their views have to be listened to and Everton did. But what Everton are doing is is effectively, sympathetically and sensitively restoring an area of the city, which is a no-go-zone at the moment. I mean... People can't visit the Bramley Moor dock. It's been sealed off for years and years. And so these old Victorian walls and the hydraulic uh, tower, which Everton are looking at restoring, can't be seen anyway. Everton's work there is going to restore these you know, historic artifacts and it's going to make them, if you like, visitor friendly. Um, so, UNESCO, I mean, I, I went through this in the past uh, a while ago where I talked about should Liverpool lose the World Heritage Site status? So what? I mean, it was given to Liverpool in 2004. Um, if you think of what the work that was done on the Albert Dock, I mean, I remember it in the 80s, you know, when it was uh, a derelict, dilapidated, no go zone. If you don't remember it back then, just look at Boys from the Black Stuff. And there's a great episode that uh, Dixie's Last Ride in there, which is um, gives you like a, a view of the docks as it looked then. 20 odd years later, it's become this incredible visitor attraction that has got the Tate, you know, sort of gallery on there. Uh, you know, it's a wonderful place to visit. And UNESCO got on board after that and decided to give us World Heritage Site status. But to put that into context, it's now, what's the phrase they used? In danger, in danger of losing that uh, that status. As is the historic city of Vienna. As is the Florida Everglades. And as is the old city of Jerusalem and its wall. Now, do you think those centres are concerned at losing that status? Do you think they'll lose, you know, sort of visitor spending? I, I suspect not so i don't think we need to worry too much about that but the interesting thing is uh the victorian society and uh, historic england they appear to have come on board now i mean initially having talked about the incontrovertible harm that could be done to a dock which basically no one can visit they're now basically accepting that um yeah you know so th- this could be a, a real positive for the city and they actually accept um i'm just trying to find the phrase that they uh, they've used Uh, should be considered a significant public benefit. They've accepted that it will be a significant public benefit. So, the work that Everton have done and uh, the very, very sensitive and sympathetic way that Everton have handled this seems to have won those two influential bodies over. You know, they wouldn't they would rather it didn't happen because these old Victorian walls, you know, are going to be sort of built around but they've accepted that the work that Everton are doing is absolutely for the public benefit so again you know so a major feather in the cap for the work that Everton have done to get these two influential bodies on board and as far as UNESCO are concerned I would never go down Sam's road and talk about middle fingers and stuff like that but basically (laughs) basically we don't need to worry about that so much I genuinely don't think that's a significant issue
0: and how exciting is it then Adam now
2: I think there's always going to be a little bit of concern
0: because of our past kind of history with, with new stadium sites, isn't there? But yeah. now, you know, as i saying, Everton do deserve credit for the way they've went about this. There is, you know, things that I think can frustrate people a little bit, like, you know, the um, the planning things and the... What? the delays. And, yeah, the delays yeah. and what was the, the form things that Everton had to... The public... The consultation the consultations. Consultations. Yeah. Is that a brain meltdown Yeah. <laughs> Uh, the public consultations, but all this then gives Everton, you know, a good amount of kind of evidence to to go into these planning committees with. So, I mean, by the start of what the 24-25 season,
1: you could be reporting on Everton matches from a, a brand new stadium. Well, I think this is the be- the best way to go about it, isn't it? And I mean, we've probably spoke about this on the podcast a few times. But you know, while I can understand, you know, the the uh, concerns about you know potential delays and you know, I, I described it before as the meticulous way that Everton have gone about this. You know, this is essentially the right way to go about it, isn't it? You'd rather that Everton explored every avenue at this point and managed to make sure they tied up any sort of loose ends before they even got to this stage, <laughs> rather than you know getting to you know perhaps plan stage and maybe thinking, oh, th- this this bit could get rejected or this bit could get rejected because you just don't want to be in that situation, do you? You want to make sure that every single aspect of this is perfect and it's going to be. It's going to be approved. No, no bother at all. And that that really does feel like the situation that the club have got themselves in at the minute. And you look at that public consultation. You know, it's the biggest public consultation the city's ever seen. I think it was sixty-three thousand people yeah. took part in that public consultation, which is absolutely incredible. And I think the interesting thing that this council report now uh, now highlights is that you know whatever way you cut up. This, these consultation figures, you know, whether you cut it up into, you know, just Everton fans or just Liverpool fans, just local people, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, the support levels don't drop below eighty yeah. percent for this stadium. That that's absolutely massive, and you know, that's something that, you know, perhaps you know the, the Liverpool City Council will obviously take notice of this, but you know, at a higher government level as well, they're going to see figures like that and they're going to think to themselves, "Wow, this is this yes. is clearly an amazing project and it's really well backed." Uh, among the local community as well not just with everton fans but with liverpool fans as well with non-football fans for example you know yeah. this is this is going to be a benefit to the whole city not just for everton football club and i think you know th- to be able to go through this you know whole process you know while it might have been you know a little bit frustrating at times you know you you s- sat there waiting i think we've had it even over this winter you know we've just been sat there waiting thinking oh, when's this plan of meeting when's it when's it going to come when's it going to come you know there was a, a little bit of a a little bit of a wary attitude i think among uh, some supporters that it was taking so long but you know the, the this this report coming through now and recommended that it gets approved fingers crossed that does happen uh, at the council meeting next week and you know it, as i said before it really does feel like the wheels are fully in motion on this project now and i think you know all those all those little delays, et cetera, that have happened over recent uh, months and years, you know, they'll just fall by the wayside by the time that, you know, we're hopefully seeing work starting in the spring or in the summer. And Prenna, we'll, we'll bring the final word on the stadium
0: to you before we get into the, the joys of Fulham, but hmm. with each forward step that kind of plan and takes, I did find myself daydreaming before about that last moment, that last time you go inside Goodison Park, obviously so much of your your life and your career has been based in, inside and, and around everything that happens at the stadium. Can you even begin to think about what it'll be like for you personally the last time you uh, you leave the old lady?
2: Oh, no, I can't. It's going to be deeply, deeply emotional. Um I wrote, or I put, I put a tweet out, was it, at the start of last season, about yeah. um, the countdown. About I think I calculated how many visits we may have. You know, to go to some park before we say goodbye to us. I can't remember how many it was, but it was obviously a very finite number. Um, we've been deprived of a large chunk of that number already, uh, but as a result of the uh, the pandemic and the lockdown, uh, so it's going to be a very very few opportunities. You know, possibly, you know. If we get, if we're allowed back in next season, that's was it three seasons that we'll have. You know, to um, to basically say a farewell to a place that's it's like you say it's been wrapped up in so many people's lives in so many different ways. Uh, I mean, my mother-in-law got married there. Uh, I've been so you know so so many social events and functions there, in addition to the actual football side of things. um, You know, so so many incredibly emotional moments in our lives, happy and sad. Have taken place inside that football stadium. It means something different to absolutely everybody, uh, but it's a, a deep, deep emotional resonance. And so, yes, it is going to be a really, really, you know, sort of poignant time uh, when it does come to say farewell to us. And obviously, you know, the, what, what happens to Goodison Park, you know, forms part of this 200 page uh, planning documents as well. Um, I think there's a, a line in there that says that Everson are obliged to put their plans into place within three years of having, you know, sort of moved into Bramley Moor. Now we understand that that's not going to take anything like that time at all. Everton are going to look to be, you know, so putting those plans into place within months of leaving Bramley Moor. And their legacy project for Goodison Park is very, very impressive. They're not just going to abandon Walton. They obviously are going to, you know, sort of put lots of things into place to permanently indicate that this is where Everton Football Club spent over a century, you know, sort of their lives but it's It's going to be you know, sort of a very, very sad farewell. And it's not just Evertonians, I think, that way. I've heard so many people from the football you know community at large that say how much they love Goodison Park as a venue and as a football ground with character and with history and with tradition and heritage. So, yeah, it'll, it'll be a place that's mourned uh, by a lot of people. But we do need a new stadium. I and mean, we're all very, very excited about Bramley Mordock. So, yeah, it's a double-edged sword. Whilst we'll be very, very sad to leave Goodison Park, we'll be very, very excited and proud of the new stadium that we'll moving into. The Royal Blue Podcast from the Liverpool Echo.
0: We'll have them.
1: Do we have to? <laughs> Put <it off> long <laughs> long <laughs> long we've had the good bit.
0: We've had the good bit. Now it's the bad bit. Uh, Fulham, West Ham, Newcastle, Leeds. Four visitors to Goodison Park. All defeats. No goals scored. Fulham, the latest team to mm. do a number on
1: Everton. Yeah. Worst performance of the season so far? Uh. Pff. It's it comes it comes close with that in the Newcastle game, doesn't it? I think the very similar in many ways. Even though Carlo Ancelotti, you know, I think quite strangely said after the game that this wasn't down to the mental uh, the mental side of his of his squad; it was more down to the to the physical side. And you know, he was trying to refer to the you know playing extra time against in spares and midweek, etc. But did many of those players who started uh, yesterday play the full? 120 minutes against Spurs. Yeah, I'm, I'm. not sure how many of them did because we did. We did make a few changes to that side, and you know, it, it just smacked to me as exactly the same as the Newcastle game, and they just didn't. They didn't learn from their mistakes. I think from the first few minutes, F- Fulham. Like, let's get this out the way. Fulham, to to all of their credit, you know, they played Everton in the in the exact right way. In, in fairness, you know, they were pressing high from the front. They weren't given. Our defenders or midfielders, in particular, any time to pick up the ball and any time to build attacks from there. So Scott Parker will be looking at that as a fantastic performance from his side. But from those first few minutes, you could tell that Everton just went on it. You know, they they went. They didn't seem motivated for the game. They didn't seem up for the fight. You know, I, I wrote in my analysis. If you were if you'd not watched any of the football season before that game, and then you watched Everton against Fulham at Goodison Park. Which team would you think was fighting for a European place? Yeah. It certainly wouldn't be Everton. And I think the most frustrating thing for me is that it got to half time, nil-nil. Yeah, Everton had even hit the post at that at that point. So arguably they'd come closest to scoring. Yeah. So you think to yourself, all right, well, surely we've seen we've seen the error of our ways. Surely things will change at half time. You know, even if there's no personnel changes, the players will come out with a new Sort of motivation to try and yeah. to try and get a win here. You know they've had another bad 45 minutes. Let's try and put that behind us. But instead, within what was it, three or four minutes of the second half starting, they are goal down, and they never look like ever picking that back up again. To be honest, you know it was only a matter of time before Fulham scored their second, rather than Everton uh, getting back into the game at that point. Which I think that's probably the most frustrating thing for me. And you know, I, I probably would say that was the worst performance of the season because. You know, you're going into this game, and Fulham were, you know, essentially cut adrift at the bottom of the Premier League. You know, one of three teams. Then West Brom and Sheffield United. You know, the people over the last few weeks have been thinking to themselves, just how are these, how are any of these three teams going to be able to save themselves at this point? Well, yeah. apparently all it took was Fulham uh, taking a trip to go to part and suddenly, suddenly they're right back in the mix. I think for for potentially staying up, and I think that's that's the most frustrating thing about it for me. So you know, if Everton really have hopes of qualifying for Europe. They can't just they can't keep letting results like this happen because these are the games that are going to get you there at the end of the day. It, it's all well and good going to Manchester United and battling back from two goals down to get a point. Yeah, But if you're not beating sides like Fulham at home, with all due respect to Fulham, who, are, as I've said, have played a really good game against us, but if you're not beating sides like that at home, then you've got no chance of qualifying for Europe.
2: Well, it,
0: it it has to be said, doesn't it? With three points... Adrift the top four with two games in hand, you know, albeit a really big week uh, coming up for us with Manchester City and Liverpool. But And, you know, we we would have bit anyone's hand off, I think, if you would have offered, offered us that after 22 matches at the start of the season. But do you think Carlo, do you think Carlo got it wrong last night? Do you think with his team selection and his substitutions?
2: If, if when you saw when you saw the team announced in advance of the game, you didn't automatically think, "Oh wow, you know," so he's 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 got it horribly wrong there. We wanted it freshening up, you know. We wanted uh, three or four, you know, some new faces coming in because we knew some players were going to be tired and leg weary after the weekend. Sort of raised an eyebrow, uh, you know. So, such a young and youthful central defensive pairing, Mason Holgate and Ben Godfrey. Although maybe Carlo was guilty of a little bit of complacency, thinking, "Oh well, it's Fulham." You know, so they're not going to trouble yeah. us too much uh, offensively. Even though we pointed out in the pod last week that you know Fulham haven't been battered this season by you know many teams. They've gone close a number of times, and they have improved dramatically. Um, but you know, Gilfie Sigurdsson playing, having played a whole full hundred and twenty minutes, you know, was that the right thing to do? I, I don't know. Personally, I, I think the, the bigger problem was amongst the players themselves and their attitude yeah. and their approach to the game. And we've seen it before, Uh, you know, we've seen it in the home game against Newcastle, we've seen it in, in other matches this season. And it's almost like it's a group of players that is capable of raising themselves for big challenges. For example, you know, at Old Trafford or, you know, Leicester away or Wolves away. But those games are rendered meaningless if you're throwing away games that you should be winning, like Newcastle at home, like Fulham at home, like a Fulham team that had never won a Goodison Park in a league game before. And to me, that indicates that the players aren't quite right mentally for what we want to achieve at Everton Football Club. You want players who are technically proficient, you know, which a lot of those players are. But they've got to have the character to be able to show an absolute 100% intensity every single game, not just when they feel like it and not just when it's a particularly big game. That's what great teams do. That's what really good teams do. Manchester City, who are absolutely running away with the Premier League at the moment, have got great quality players. They have. But Pep Guardiola always makes a point of saying how intensely hard-working those players are and how much they put into every single game. And they do they are—they put all manner of like you know so sort of lung-busting performances in week after week. There's one of the stats I think it was the other night that talked about it. Was it was the two players who've covered the most ground for Everson. I might have got it wrong. I might have seen the, the passes, but it appeared to be was it Godfrey and Holgate. And I thought that can't be right, you know. So surely they can't be covering more ground than the lads who are playing in midfield or the forwards who are supposed to be pressing. I mean, Richarlison touched the ball four times in the first half. So then, yeah. you know, okay, you can point your finger at the uh, at the service he was receiving, but equally, where was he in terms of chasing down defenders? I mean, Fulham looked like Brazil on the night because we gave them so much space. You know, there was no intensity on the ball at all, uh, and to me, that indicates a problem with the character of the players. You know, so too many of the players uh, were too complacent and too laid back, and that, that's not changed. You know, a number of times this season, and that's got to be telling Carlo that there's a problem with some of the uh, the mindset of a lot of those players.
0: Was you surprised, then, Adam? I think a, a lot of people, certainly on social media, at half-time, have had came to the conclusion. I think, as you had, something needed to change. And I think we were all a bit surprised when Carlo didn't change it. A couple of minutes later, form a win. Yeah. Do you think maybe that 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 was where something should have happened there? Maybe a Wolby or someone like that comes on and just changed the direction of Because sometimes, it, especially this season. I think in all those games, Fulham, West Ham, Newcastle, everyone could just see where it was eventually
1: heading by a certain point in the game. Yeah, I think that's completely right. And, you know, throughout the first half, I I could just I was just sitting there thinking to myself, Alex Iwobi would be the perfect substitution to make it. Like, I know he didn't have the best of games against Spurs, but, you know, he's a player who's fluctuated in form throughout his Everton career. Yeah. But probably one of the best games that he's ever had for Everton came at Craven Cottage earlier this season. I know he was playing as a right wing back on a on that occasion, but it was his direct nature with the ball. He was picking up the ball and he was just driving straight at the heart of that Fulham defence whenever he got it. You know, he was making the right decisions at the right times, you know, making some great passes, making some good dribbles and he was just a constant thorn in the side of them and the thing that really made me think that, you know, surely he's going to come on at half-time was, was the, the incident that led to his hitting the post. You know, it was Seamus Coleman running directly at the heart of the Fulham defence. Yeah. They all just stood off him and eventually Coleman, you know, took a shot at the post. Now, Seamus Coleman is probably not the player that you want in those positions, taking shots from outside the box. You know, if we'd have made the substitution at halftime, even if we'd have brought on Josh King, who I thought, you know, he looked quite lively when he came on. But by the time he'd come on, we would have goal down. And as I say, we didn't really look like we were going to get back into the game. So it was a bit of a thankless task for him. But I did think, you know, he worked his socks off. You know, he, he looked like... He looked a lot fitter than he's done over the last few weeks when he's when he's come on uh which probably you know probably shows that he hadn't been getting all that many minutes of bournemouth this season so he, he just needs to work his way back up doesn't he but in terms of a iwobi I, I just thought he he would have been he would have been the perfect sub because surely he would have just picked the ball up and ran straight at the heart and, at the heart of this team and you know if if you if you're one of the players who stayed on the pitch and you see you know, a player doing something like that, then surely it gives you the motivation to go. All right, then, like, I'll I'll raise my game a little bit, and I'll and I'll try and match the levels that, you know, this this new substitute is showing. Because, you know, as I say, by the time King had come on, it was it was it was a thankless task, and he couldn't really do much. You know, he did he did put the ball in the back of the net, of course, but he was offside. So, you know, there's there's a positive for him to maybe focus on that. You know, he's he at least. He at least got the ball in the net, but it, it was just in general an absolutely woeful, woeful performance. And you know, I, I don't want to put it all on you know, if we'd have made the half time substitution, it all would have been different because y- you can't tell. Yeah, I think it, it would have gave us a great chance of maybe turning the game around. But I think just the way that we started the game, Kilfi Sigurdsson playing as a false nine, uh, just, just didn't work. And then, as you say, we put Richarlison up front, he had what, four touches throughout the first half. Yeah. That really didn't work either. We started the second half and we kind of put Rodriguez up front with with Allison in like a weird new formation in like a very narrow 4-4-2. Yeah. That really didn't work either. Uh, I thought taking Tom Davis off was the wrong decision because I thought he was probably our most energetic and most motivated midfielder again. Yeah, And, you know, by the time all those decisions are piled up, it was just... Just a litany of errors, to be honest, and it was it was only gonna to lead to one outcome, which I think is really, really frustrating for anybody who's watching.
0: Well, me and me and Adam were looking the other day, and we've only been winning by two clear goals going into the final 20 minutes, I think once since the Brighton game at the at the very start of the season, which sums up, you know, how tight a lot of one nils and two ones. Uh, late goals are the only time we were 2-0 up with 20 minutes to go it was Leicester away. We seem to kind of revel in the games where it's a battle and we know we have to sit deep and kind of pick a goal off on the counter or perhaps from a set piece or a penalty, whatever it is. What is have, you, have you ever seen anything like this from an Everton team before where it just kind of seems like Carlo can't figure out a way to get them playing, where they
2: can take the handbrake off a little bit and, and push on? Why are we struggling consistently in these games? Yeah, given the fact that, you know, earlier on in the season, we saw a completely different type of approach. I mean, you know, West Brom 5-2, West Ham 4-1 in the Cup, Brighton 4-2. They were like really refreshing games. We thought, wow, this is like an Everton team, well worth watching. And we were really enjoying it whilst we were accepting that, well, okay, you know, we are a little bit too open at times, uh, but we're winning games. And it was almost like that little spell, you know, where we got, East at Southampton and Newcastle beat us and United absolutely well and truly turned us over. The cause, like, almost like a reassessment and, a, you know, a different approach. and As you rightly say, you know, we have seen a team that now looks to be a lot tighter and effectively seems to be trying to win things with, with set pieces and, you know, so and counter-attacking football. And it was even mentioned in commentary uh, on Sunday night that Everson are one of the few teams in the Premier League that defends really, really deeply, uh, you know, even at set plays, Almost like on the edge of the six-yard box, and it's almost like that is designed to try and invite teams in, so you can then hit them on the counter. And with the best one in the world, we shouldn't be trying to hit Fulham on the counter, you know. So we should be trying yeah, to dominate yeah. them, and you know, so and pass our way through them. And we have players of the ability uh, to do that. So I don't know. is a simple answer. I mean, you know, so Carlo has introduced this this method uh, to try and counter some of the issues he was spotting earlier on in the season. And you know we wouldn't question too much, you know, so what Carlo's doing. You know, he's an elite level manager, and we love you know what he's doing at Everton Football Club. But sometimes he does leave you scratching your head a little bit, you know. So, and we were on Sunday night certainly um, something needs to change. I think, uh, as I said, earlier, I think it's more to do with the mindset of the players rather than as much you know sort of tactical nuance. Tactical might, you know, a tactical switch might have helped on the Sunday night, but definitely the mindset of the players has to change. And, you know, are we going to see something different on Wednesday night against Manchester City? Maybe, because they might be more motivated, you know, sort of perform in a game like that. But, you know, even if somehow we can get a result in that game, it doesn't matter because you've tossed away, you know, not easy points. There's no such thing in the Premier League these days. But certainly winnable points against clubs like Newcastle, against clubs like Leeds, against clubs like Fulham. They are points that have been squandered. And that is deeply, deeply frustrating.
0: Well, I'll offer up, offer up this one to to the room. I think we uh, we are now recording this just before the big stadium news is, is dropping, so we'll end after this one. But do you think does these next two do these next two games and does this week define the season for Do you think do you, do we need at least one result to keep ourselves in and around? Certainly, that that Champions League hunt, or. Because it's such a topsy-turvy season, is there still a lot of football to be played? there still be 14 games left.
1: Yeah, I, I don't think it defines the season, uh, personally. Because, you know, at the end of the day, you're yeah, about to play two of the best sides in the country. Yeah. So, as, as Preno rightly says, we kind of seem to get ourselves a bit more motivated for these games. So, you know, if the Manchester United and Spurs game have probably... Taught us anything? It's it's that you know if ever, even if Everton do get themselves up for these games, they've got the potential to, as Preno quite aptly put it, squander points against against teams that you know we we really we really should be beaten. So I, I'm I'm half I'm half tempted to say the 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 actual turning point of the season is when we can you know actually come up against you know a side such as Fulham at home. You know I'm not sure when the next winnable game is going to be at home, but it, it's going to be when we come up against one of those sides at home and actually just comfortably beat them. I think that's that's going to be the big turning point because we just haven't had that in so long. We I don't think we've won a home league game so far in twenty twenty one, which yeah. you know for, for a side who would, would challenging for Europe, it just doesn't that just doesn't really make sense to me. So you know you can put in, I'm sure we'll put in you know some some better performances against Man City and Liverpool. You know these players will get themselves up for it, and uh, you know they'll they'll make themselves a bit more proud, I think, than they did uh, in this Fulham game. But whether or not we get results out of those games, I, I don't think it's going to necessarily, you know, if we, if we if we were, you know, touch wood, hopefully this doesn't happen, but if we were to lose both games, I don't think it necessarily rules us out of the race for Europe because, as I said before, it's those it's those games against, you know, the teams that you should be beating. Those yeah. are the games that really define your season. Yeah. Never mind, you know, getting good results against, you know, the, you know a team... A, especially Man City, a team that are going to be running away with the title by the end of the season. So, yeah, it's a big week and, you know, it's an important week for Everton to test themselves against two really good opposition sides. But I don't think it's a necessarily defining week for the season.
2: No, I I think what could, you know, sort of define this season is if we can finally, finally win a game at Anfield for the first time this century. I mean, that would, uh, that that would curry so much favour for Carlo. And, you know, you know, be a major, you know, sort of feather in his cap. But no, as regards the, the Champions League situation, if you lose both games, yeah, possibly you could say that the Champions League is maybe a bridge too far, but you know, Europe is still there. And as we've seen this season, it's a strange old campaign. Um, probably one of the positives is that we haven't been inside Goodison Park this season to witness some of those absolutely rank displays. But equally, if there had been a crowd in there, would we have seen them? You know, would would the crowd dynamic of you know impacted upon the players and would have seen something a little bit different? We just don't know, do we? Which is why this season is so strange. So there's an awful lot to happen. It's still only just past halfway, you know. So there's an awful lot of football still to be played. So no, whatever happens in the next two games isn't going to really define anything, unless we can win at Anfield. <laughs> we'll be uh, we'll be certainly celebrating then. <laughs>
0: Well, let's hope it is a big week for the Blues and let's hope when we next reconvene for a Royal Blue podcast, we're speaking about a, a famous 6-0 win over Man City at Wilson <laughs> Park. We can dream, can't we? Hopefully, <laughs> prediction, <laughs> <laughs> hopefully everyone enjoys the stadium news tonight and get them dreaming of a glorious trophy-laden future at Bramley Moor Dock. Thank you for listening. You can join the Royal Blue podcast Facebook group and join in the discussion with all the lads there. We've been Sam Carroll, Adam Jones, Dave Prentice. Thank you for listening.
2: You've been listening to the Royal Blue Podcast from the Liverpool Echo.